the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky thing, Mr. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Joe Napote, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in national politics and the real issues that really matter. You too can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Hey, good morning, everybody, and Happy New Year. We have uh, our first edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program for the year 2022. Our weekly roundtable consists of uh, today's panel of political pundits, our roundtable regulars on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Good morning, Paul, and Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year. And uh, on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Henry, Happy New Year to you and welcome. Uh, Thank you, Tom, and Happy New Year to you and to our our roundtable. And and this is uh, kind of interesting because I I can say, and back again this week, (laughs) joining Uh. us for the roundtable, is uh, East Village Magazine Consulting Editor Jan Worth Nelson. Happy New Year, Jan. Welcome. Yay. Roundtable, how are you guys? Happy New Year, Jan. Happy New Year. Same to you. Jan was actually... uh, on the show last week, because it was a repeat from when we all went to hell for Halloween. did, <laughs> oh. Yeah, last, last week on the show, I, I had a lot of highlights from 2021. And, um, and, and in order to take the whole week off, I did a repeat for Armchair Politics and decided the, the highlight was when we all went to hell. <laughs> for Halloween, that's true. That's true. Actually, that's that's really the only kind of thing you can use as a repeat because armchair politics is usually very time sensitive, and yeah. uh, we're going to yeah. be somewhat time sensitive today um, as we look back at uh, 2021 and uh, uh, maybe forward to what we can expect for 2022. But I always start with some quotes. And uh, the first one is a finish the quote, where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? And it uh, and it goes like this. I didn't know what Facebook was, and now that I do know what it is, I have to say it sounds like a huge waste of time. Oh, that's Betty White, <laughs> I think. <laughs> it was indeed Betty White who passed away last weekend at uh, age 99, about two weeks shy of her 100th birthday. Yeah. 
Um, interesting uh, side note, um, and and I blew the the finish the quote part of that. I was going to leave it open ended, but um, but it I was just anxious to to talk about Betty White a little bit because she started so early in television that that it, it's almost as if now television for the first time in history exists without Betty White. Yeah, yeah. What was what was her her first program was it something didn't she do something in the late forties, early fifties? I, I, I saw some coverage of it this past week. Oh she was on one of the first uh, television shows broadcast from Los Angeles, I think I want to say it was 1939. Oh, no kidding. Oh, I think I saw pretty much the same thing. Yeah, she was in high school, and she and the captain of the football team or something danced on Ah. on Sunday. And it was like the first television show ever broadcast. It was in Los Angeles. And, and I think it was all in black and white. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, and, definitely those and, days. And she did, um, you know, a lot of uh, live commercials. She did a, a talk show, and I can't remember what the talk show was called, but it was five days a week, or six days a week, five and a half hours a day. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Shoot. How would you like to do that? <laughs> She had to stay up all night preparing for it. Well, you know, it was interesting listening to some people who had worked with her um, in in recent years that that experience made her completely unflappable. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, she she was just so good at going with the flow that nothing could rattle her. Yeah, it seems that way. I just looked up her secret to a long, happy life. Did you know, remember that she said... Uh, vodka and hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that sounds that sounds like her. And and she was also really humble about how much um, success she had because she was always working. I mean, right up till the very end. And um, she said that she did all of the television work to support her animal advocacy. Oh, yeah, and a lot of people have, have suggested that on her birthday that people ought to donate to local animal shelters, uh, humane societies, and so forth. I think Doris Day was the uh, same kind of a person. Oh, yeah, she absolutely. In and, and there is something interesting, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there. A couple of theaters uh, in the area are participating. Um, coming up on January 17th, um, they are playing uh, a documentary film that was going to be released to commemorate her 100th birthday oh and it oh. was all, it was all set up as if she had turned a hundred so they're just going to play it for one day but um it's uh playing at the theater uh, here in the flint area out there on uh graham road mm-hmm. the 14 oh. theater right right yeah huh. cineplex and i think at the one up in birch run um, hmm. But you, but you have to look for a theater in your area carrying it. January seventeenth, it's a one day only. Um, there will be other commemorations, I'm sure. But but anyway, just it was kind of interesting because there is absolutely nothing in her nearly one hundred years controversial 
about Betty White. I guess that's true, yeah. Yeah. There's no scandal, no tweeted the wrong thing, no uh, scandalous affairs, although she was fun and funny and and a little bit naughty at times, you know, just just enough to make it fun. And and she talks about that in, in this documentary and, and another one that I saw recently on Netflix, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But I did want to start out um, acknowledging uh, Betty White. But here's a quote that um, got my attention, the first quote of the uh, of the new year. This will be our New Year's resolution. We will not be controlled by crisis. Oh, is that uh, Rochelle Walensky from the CDC? No, uh, it's a, that's a great guess. Biden? No, it was uh, newly elected New York City Mayor Eric Adams on Saturday oh. delivering his first speech since taking office earlier in the day, declaring the city will not be controlled by crisis as it grapples with a surge of COVID-19 cases nearly two years into the pandemic. Was uh, New York Mayor Eric Adams expressing rhetoric or reality? Rhetoric. He has had two. Unfortunately, yeah, uh, you're probably right. Yeah, he's had two uh, murders already, in, mm. within probably 72 hours. Of his, of when he took office. Yes, Henry. How, how many in New York, Henry? Two. Have we, we've had four in Flint, haven't we? <laughs> I could yeah, be wrong, no, but no, I'm afraid to say four, four shootings. Maybe not all murders, but shootings in Flint. I think uh, within the last since, since New Year's Day. Wow. Well, what did we did? We might be getting ahead of this, but um, hold on a second. Um, it, what was the final number of homicides in Flint? It was so sixty-seven. Was was the the number I saw, which was one yeah. short of the record, apparently, uh, by by somebody's calculation. I'm not sure that was FBI or local calculation or what, but. I saw the number 67 was the total number of murders we had in 2021. And we don't seem to be getting any better. Uh, no, no. I mean, and considering the population is less than it was in past years, that's, that makes it even those numbers even more ominous. Yeah, it's... Um I might have something. Yeah, I do. I do have something coming up on that in, in just a few minutes. Um Here's, here's another quote that, that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, Decisional independence is essential to due process. Promoting uh-huh. impartial decision-making free from political or other extraneous influence. Uh-huh. I'm going to guess somebody part of the, yes. the redistricting commission, but I'm not sure who. Maybe I don't know. No, I wouldn't have been Justice Thomas, would it? No, but you're you're close, Henry. It was Chief Justice John Roberts. Oh, he he stressed the importance of the judiciary's institutional independence Friday in an annual report that comes as the Supreme Court is considering some of the most important issues of the day, and critics are seeking to dilute the court's conservative majority. Besides his duties on the high court, Roberts presides over the 
Judicial Conference, a body responsible for making policy regarding the administration of the courts and releases a report each New Year's Eve on the state of the judiciary. How would you characterize the state of the U.S. judiciary? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Right now, problematic. Yeah. That's a, the division. It, it's being seen as, as more partisan than it has been for a long time, um, which is generally not good for the courts. Well, that seems kind and of... it's not good for the country. It seems kind of troubling if the Chief Justice says decisional independence is essential to due process. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. What he has to remind his colleagues there. Well, yeah. that's that's. I think that's kind of what the the state of the judiciary report does each year. I think it sums up things that have been maybe concerns and and maybe some victories too, um, as as a way of setting a tone for the new year. Well. He's going to need some extra luck on that because it doesn't seem like his leadership as a chief justice has swayed um, the conservative block. He sort of lost his... And there's some real hot-button issues coming up this year, too. I know. Hmm. So it could be a rough ride for the court. It's possible. It's supposed to be deciding almost any day now about... um, the Trump issue of um, his documents being freed up to, from the National yeah. Archives—that uh, would be that'll be interesting. I, I, it always creeped me out when Trump would call them my Supreme Court. <laughs> right? Yeah, my justices. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have limited control over no matter what you embrace. Yeah. Whether it's your wife, whether it's kids, whether it's your uh, friends and your organizations that you belong to, you just don't have absolute control. Nobody does. Nobody should. So, uh, and that might be related to what Merrick Garland says today. I'm really curious to know what what he's going to say. He certainly seems like a... It's hard. I mean, I had hoped that he would take some actions, but uh, it doesn't seem like he's inclined in that direction. His his caution is almost uh, too cautious for my taste. I don't know. Do you guys have any views on that? Or Tom, I don't know if that was something you had on your agenda today. No, I, no I didn't have anything on Merrick Garland. I'm glad you brought it up. I suspect he probably um, is, is still licking his wounds from the treatment he got when he was a Supreme Court nominee. Yeah, it could be He's, the case. He probably yeah. doesn't want to get out front of anything <laughs> yet, but maybe maybe that maybe he'll grow into that in time. We'll see. Anyway, we have to take a short break, but we've got lots more armchair politics on this first edition of the new year 2022 with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter joined by consulting editor from East Village Magazine, Jane Worth Nelson. If you're listening to us on 92.1 LPFM Flint, they are a uh, broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. Lots more armchair politics straight ahead. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner Program. We have uh, joining us for uh, this week's political roundtable. We have uh, our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Jan Worth-Nelson. Um, welcome back, everybody. We started to talk about this during the uh, last segment, and, and I'll get into it in just a moment, but I wanted to bring this up and see what your thoughts are. You know, for several years now, I have uh, opened... The, the first segment of Armchair Politics with uh, some quotes that I've picked up uh, from various media through the week. And I'm thinking about changing that, and, and I have this idea, and I'll just run it by you and see what your thoughts are, of taking that segment, and instead of uh, picking on some quotes of the week, um, I would pick a different news story from a different news source and then pick it apart and talk about how it should have been written. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, and, and the reason is, is because I keep, um, I, I keep seeing things. Oh, I think we lost Henry, and he's about to rejoin us. Hang on. Let me let me get him back in. There, Henry. Are you back with us? Yes, I'm. Uh, thank you. I just dropped out. Yeah, no and anyway, what I've been noticing, and, and I see it a lot on CNN, um, but it, it's happening in all kinds of media, local, state, national, um, where the reporters themselves are making value judgments in the way they're describing people and issues. Yeah, and they've been doing that for quite a while. They have been, and I... I thought, well, then they must be learning this somewhere. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's time to learn something else, like how to actually be objective. And I thought, what's what's a better way than to take a a story and pick it apart and say, why would a reporter use this phrase? It's interesting. Yeah. What do There's you think? a million different ways to be. Um, Objective, and there's a million different ways to be biased. Um, you know, it's really easy for that bias to creep in. So it, that would be an interesting thing. I'm a big fan yeah. of Elter's reliable sources, and he's often been talking about how the local media, in particular, really have to up their game. We have to figure out a way to keep the local news coming through clearly, and journalists just we have to keep working harder. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you one quick example. Um, anytime somebody talks about Trump's challenges to the 2020 election outcome, it's referred to as the big lie. Mm -hmm. Who decided it was okay to call it that? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, even, even if you believe yourself privately that that is in fact what it is why not describe it as trump challenging the outcome and not you know not automatically tag it with the big lie now that's just one example and i see it all the time 
these these little phrases that have made their them their way into reporting and I, I I just think there are ways to do it more objectively and I thought I thought maybe as a group we could pick a story apart every week yeah I, that's an interesting example because in that particular case that's a provocative example in that particular case most journalists are so um, offended by the fact that it was a lie, that it has been a lie, a deliberate lie all the way along, um, that the use of the word lie has come in for the first time, really, in a lot of, a lot of places where they just wouldn't u- ever use that word. But in, in that particular case, it's been a transition for the media to use that word, to say, this was a lie. And, of course, to a journalist, the difference between the truth and a lie is pretty essential. And, you know, a reporter's job is supposed to be to distinguish between the truth and the lie with the evidence. So in that particular example, that is interesting because I think, but, but you know, I would, uh, some media have guided their process of how they came to decide that they would use the word lie. I mean, you're talking about the big lie as a label for it, but... Um, uh, that, that's an interesting example. I, I, it I is maybe a, it, it is a big lie, but calling out a lie is pretty central to what the media is supposed to do, in my in my view. But is it the reporter's job to make that label, or is it the reporter's job to find a, a credible source that uses that <laughs> phrase? Um. See more and oh, more. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. See more yeah, I, and more, we're seeing cases. We see this especially on national television, where there's an anchor at the anchor desk who does a little tease about a story, and now they're going to go to Lafayette Park in front of the White House for, you know, we're going to zero in on this, and there's one person standing there, a reporter who's going to tell us what's going on inside the White House. Not somebody who's inside the White House <laughs> that comes out and talks to that yeah. reporter, but the reporter yeah. is now the expert. And every mm. time I see that, and I see it in local news, I see it in national news, <clears throat> excuse me, and I'm, and, and I'm annoyed by that. Yeah. Because yeah. the... the 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 reporters, it, there used to be a difference between reporters, pundits, and the newsmakers. Yeah. And now yeah, they've got I, them all rolled into one. <coughs> and and now reporters, who many of whom are sometimes new to the business, or at the very least have never worked in the things they're covering. Right. And well, you know, uh, they're being treated that, as experts. Yeah, that's okay. an important point. I, in our journalism, in our EVM training, uh, we say to the new writers, um, "This isn't about you and what you think. This is about what somebody else tells you." And the sources are gold. I mean, the sources are central to it. So it's not supposed to be about how smart you are. It's supposed to be about what somebody tells you or what you've been able to learn from. Mm-hmm. Sources of, of evidence. Right. Um, I, yeah. I think my my goal would be to raise up 
the the expertise of the reader and right. and to trust their intelligence so by presenting multiple sides of an issue i think it's up to them to decide is this the big lie or i'm in i'm in complete harmony with both of you and can you hear me yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, you're coming through oh, loud and clear. I'm in Annie. complete harmony with you, and I love you bring this issue up. I just read an article a couple hours ago about a white police woman that was shot to death by a, a black couple. Uh, this woman had pleaded for her life. Uh, you don't have to do this, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then I looked at how they presented that information to the public, and you know, there's a biased way that you can, you can, you can dictate to the outcome of what people believe, what is the truth, or and, and whether you're hitting at the essence of the story. And then I compared that to, to Shelvin's situation, and thinking through what a tragic that was. But there was a difference in this reporting. She had to convince me that this was the same kind of incident, what Chauvin did to this victim was like what this couple did for that person. She was unarmed. But they said she was unarmed. But how you cannot call the person unarmed if they wear a gun is that she was overpowered and the gun was taken to her from her. There was a little twist in it that tried to affect an outcome. But I, I, I agree with the writer, I, and I, I, I simply hope that the people who shot the policeman in this circumstance would get the same fate that Shelvin got. Because the same kind of a deal. Uh, you know, I, I'm struck also that there's bias of various other kinds, too, that you can come across in terms of selection of topics. You know, I used to talk about, uh, let's, let's say you're talking about a welfare issue, and one station talks about a... Uh, a water Cadillac situation where somebody's taking the money and buying Cadillacs. Somebody, a, a different station talks about how someone used the money to help their kids go to school and keep the family together and all that. Now, they're both true, both true right. examples, but by selecting out the story, you can give entirely different yes. bias to that kind of an issue. Uh, so I think the selection of, of who you interview and which stories you pick up has got a built-in bias to it as well. Uh, well, and that's, that and that's why it's important not just to uh, not just to find somebody that is going to reinforce some conclusion you've already reached as a writer, right? Yeah. But to yeah. get all sides of it and present all the information to a reader or a viewer or a listener, and let them decide based on some evidence and, and some amount of persuasion by the various people with their different points of view. Anyway, I just thought it'd be a, an interesting segment because there are so many ways we try to encourage people to vet stories. Before we leave the topic, let me talk about one more kind of bias I used to talk yeah. about in class on occasion. Different kinds of media cover it differently. You know, let's say there's a giant flood someplace, and there's homes are destroyed, and people have been have have, have been drowned, and so forth. Well, on <clears throat> on ten television, you may see people crying on camera. Oh my God, my house is destroyed, my brother died, yeah. and that sort. Of, the newspaper is going to talk about how many acres were flooded, how much rain came down, FEMA's coming in, doing this and doing that, and so forth. Again, they're both true parts of the story. 
but you get a very different impression when you see somebody crying on television compared to mm-hmm. how a newspaper will cover the very same kind of an issue. Right. And it transfers the guilt. <clears throat> it transfers the guilt to we, the observer. What should we have done? How are we found uh, that these people lost all of the health? What should be our role in correcting that? You know, that, that's an ugly way to do the news as far as I'm concerned. I, I like between what I heard from you, Paul, there are two sides of that must be brought together on one platform and reported. So you don't put on a guilt trip on people around the world. I think <clears throat> I would want to add that it's been complicated by the deliberate use of misinformation <clears throat> in the last years. And reporters, um, if they're supposed to present both sides of the story or three or four sides of the story, I mean, it's, it's rarely just binary. But if they're presented with information that is not true, and then that's supposed to show that they're not biased, that they show all sides of the story, but some of those sides of the story are wrong. Uh, yeah. My view is the reporter needs to be able to demonstrate the material that isn't true because we're, we're in the business <coughs> of the truth is. And maybe part of what you're saying, uh, Tom, is you've got a source, you've got to give the sources for who says this is false. So it can't just be the reporter says this is false, the reporter has to say, according to blah, blah, or, blah. This or maybe it's up to the reporter to do a better job of vetting the source. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and get again, somebody who, who knows what they're talking about. You may disagree with their conclusions, but you you find out what is this person's expertise. You just don't get somebody because they have a title or... Um, you but if, if the information itself is wrong, I mean, that's the bottom line. You know, I mean, yeah. the person could be, uh, could look good on paper, but still be saying something that was untrue or mistaken. Cause this yeah, yeah the, the, I was going to say, the question is, how do you handle something that's, that's patently false? If someone says the world is flat or two and two is five, how does a reporter handle that kind of thing? Do you say, well, on the other hand, somebody else says the world is not flat. Do you, do right. you get those equivalents? Uh, I don't know. You know, I I was thinking about uh, Paul, what you said about when you report a a tornado event or a flood event, uh, it prompts someone to accept responsibility for that, and it always I think they're always talking to me when, when I see this. And what could I have done to improve the process? We all become sympathetic. But then what they typically do, they point to Washington or the governor or somebody else, uh, which may not always be true. And that doesn't help us understand the situation or help to move toward uh, improving conditions. It, it puts a guilt on the reader or on the observer. But it I think, you know, um, I've, I for one, for as long as I've been doing this show, have tried to stay as impartial as I possibly can. There are certainly things I have opinions about, and and I've shared those opinions, but I try mostly to make it about the guests and their expertise. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, in, in, in the process of doing so, I'm trying to encourage people, you know, vet this stuff. And, and yeah. I had a guy who was on the show just recently, and he, he told me a funny story, and, and, and you'll appreciate it, because... He was, he knew he was going to be on the show, so he was trying to find out a little bit about the show and about me and my, my interview technique. And 
So he went to the uh, to the Dropping website. Out, Tom. Yeah, are you still there, Tom? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he's lost us. We've lost. Yeah, him. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can go on without him. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite sure what happened there. Yeah. I see what happened. Well, we shouldn't keep that audience. Yeah, I was going to say, I was gonna say yeah. Janet, what we were talking about before. It goes back to the old Marshall McLuhan stuff of the medium is a message. I mean, different kinds of mediums tell a very different kind of story and give us a Am very different kind of impression of so many things. Yeah. So what do you do if somebody? I, I was when Tom comes back, I'd I'd like to ask him what he does on the show if somebody says something that he knows is. Yeah, he challenges. Am me. I back? He always challenges me. Hello. <laughs> I think I think Woodrow Stanley does <laughs> that. <Hello. and> Henry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that makes me better because it makes me think deeper and wider and more sympathetic and. Am I back? Yes. I think you are. Okay. Thank you. What happened was um, the stream here in the studio dropped out momentarily, and it took a while to reset and then to get myself connected. But I could hear you the whole time, which is interesting. Um, In any event, um, what I was uh, what I was starting to say is that in in the idea of doing this piece is, you know, I hope that I'm encouraging people to vet stories. And the story I was telling was about this uh, guy who was on the show and he was uh, researching to find out how I went about interviewing people. And one of the things that caught his attention was armchair politics. He, you know, went through the archives and he listened to an episode of archives and he said, he laughed out loud when he heard me say that I get my news from Facebook. And and he thought that was that was so funny, and and it was part of a similar discussion as the one we're having now, about the idea of getting your information from bumper stickers and Facebook memes and and that kind of thing, and so I like to think I'm encouraging people to vet the stories. Headlines are going to be headlines; they're going to be sensational. It's what gets people to you know click on the story or pick up a paper. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. I just think there is some discussion that we have to have these days about what the media does with uh, with information that's wrong and that's being deliberately uh, foisted about and and the and the media members know that it's wrong. I mean, uh, I guess you have to find, what you're saying is, in your view, you, you have to find a credible source that would say that on the air, for instance. If somebody says one thing that's incorrect and it's deliberately being touted as, uh, as you know, a, a truth that's not, does the reporter stop and say, wait, I'm not going to let you say this until I get another source that's going to challenge you? Um, you see what I'm saying? Uh, what what do you do on the show, Tom, if somebody says something that you know is wrong? What? How would you handle that? Well, I, see, that's a hard one for me to answer because, you know, I don't know very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, so I don't really know when people are wrong. Um, no, I think we rely on certain people that, that have expertise to share information to the best of their knowledge and the best of their ability. Now, if you know somebody is blatantly lying, I try to avoid them. 
you wouldn't have them on the show? Yeah. But so what if somebody comes on the show and says something that you know is wrong? Uh, that puts you in a bind as a as a neutral. Well, what order. I think at that point it's incumbent on me to draw that person out more. Yeah, yeah. Ask them their evidence, or yeah, and to say, well, a lot of people would say that's hooey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting how would to you watch explain how it some to people, people. Well, some reporters, especially with the one six anniversary coming up tomorrow. They're going out and interviewing people that were there that day or that are Trump supporters, ardent Trump supporters still. And they'll say, um, the, when they talk about 1-6, they'll say, uh, well, it was filled with FBI plants. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't Trump people because Trump people would never do that. And it was filled with FBI plants and Antifa and people who were dressed right. up to look like Trump supporters. You know, I've seen a few interviews like that. And the one guy that I admire, I forget his last name, but his first name is Doni. I think he's Irish or something. Um, he never, he sometimes says something like, do you really believe that? Instead of saying, what's your evidence? Like, I would like him to say, what evidence do you have uh, yes. to support that? What, you know, or even to say, it seems that the evidence isn't, doesn't agree, doesn't jive with what you're saying. So, um but it, uh, it's interesting to see reporters grapple with that. I, I'm always interested in how they handle it when somebody says something that's just blatantly. My approach, my approach, Jan, would be to just simply confront the person on behalf of people who disagree. So. And say, what do you say? Oh uh, yeah. To uh -huh. people who think that's that what you just said is balderdash. Right. And but let them explain to, it. And or the to more, present the evidence to them, I guess. But the more they try to do that, the more they try to present the information, if their case is weak, the listener will hear that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Part of the problem is that the time frame is so brief. You know, they have... A thirty-second interview. Not on my show. Person A and person A says this. Person B says that. And let's go to the sports. You know, so as things are so tight there. There's not much time for that. For for many, again, speaking of television here in particular. Uh, Eight seconds. Yeah. Yeah, that's typically. Well, not, yeah. not on my show. We have time to talk a little bit, and if you have a case to make, you better be, <laughs> you better be prepared because we got some time. You can't just say I read it somewhere. Right. Yeah. That's, that's Saw right. it on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate the significance of what you're grappling with, Tom. I, I. Uh, yeah. It's because it's very important. Yeah. It's really important. It is. And it's more an effect. Go ahead. I'm done. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm done. Well, oh. I've got another break coming up here, so okay. I, we might as well pause it there. And I want to get back to some of the things that I had in, in my notes, although this is a wonderful conversation and exactly the feedback I was looking for, because I, I think there's some there there. Yeah, I do too, Tom. So, too. you know, I think starting next week, we're probably not going to be spending a lot of time with quotes we're probably going to be talking about a story and and hopefully share the kinds of questions you need to ask when vetting a story yeah yeah and and, and some anyway. of those questions need to be asked live 
uh, you know, in the reports right. of, of your sources. Right, exactly. Anyway, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more right after this. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacle that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we continue with Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Jan Worth Nelson. Welcome back, everybody. Good to be here. Oh, are we all still here? Yeah. Yeah. Henry? Thank you. Jan? Can you hear me? Yep. There you go. Can you By the way, I was just going to add one more thing on our discussion about the, about the media and so forth. I'm always, as somebody who a million years ago used to work as a news photographer, I'm struck by how often the visual dominates the stories. How many? How often do we see a? This is on television primarily. How often do often do we see a a a, a piece of a film footage where a gasoline tanker blows up in Oklahoma, big you know ball of flame and and, and so explosion and so forth. And it makes national news. I mean, frankly, it's just, it's just simply a local accident in Oklahoma or someplace, but it makes national news because they've got some very dramatic film footage. As a story, there's not much to it, but as I say, very often the visual can dominate an awful lot of news stories. Well, yeah. Yeah, school shootings are an example of that. Uh, yeah. You know, we had, uh, there are... I had somebody that, that had been writing about this whole issue of, of how obsessed people are with school shootings, and they are horrible, and they are tragic, and sadly, they make great television. But the guy pointed out to me there are 144,000 schools in the United States. How many times does a school shooting happen in a year? We have the impression that everybody that goes to school every day is in danger of running into one of these events. That may not necessarily be true. Yeah. Yeah, well... ...is an issue some, a lot of times. Well, that, that's the old axiom about, uh, about news in general. You know, when, a, when a, uh, uh, a dog bites a man, that's not news. When a man bites a dog, that's, that's news. <laughs> When an airplane lands safely, that's not news. Airplane crashes, that's news. And so the different stuff is the news. That's true. Yeah, but when they well, cover it in such a way, Paul, that it becomes yeah, normal for I a man to bite yeah. a dog. You know, it happens three times on the planet in the course of a year. But if we spend six months talking about those three times... Then all of a sudden, <laughs> I, I, I get a, along that same line. I get a similar chuckle about all the news stories we see about shark attacks. It's various times of the year. You know, somebody sees a shark off North Carolina coast, and it's national news. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. when you think twelve hundred people a day are still dying of COVID, twelve hundred people a day. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, I do. We do hear those numbers, but I think. The proportionality of it compared to one or two shootings, um, it is interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and, and Tom, with respect to gun violence, now you say that you might change your format in coming days from uh, what we are using now to maybe analyzing a question. 
But now, I would like to know whether predators or their victims as a... Well, Henry... Are guns the problem? Henry, just to be be clear, um, I'm I'm talking about taking out the the first segment where we do the quotes and picking apart a story. We'll still go on to other stories like this, I promised yes. to get to a half hour ago, <laughs> which was, okay. and, and this is going to tie right into what you're starting to talk about, Henry. As of December 26, 2021, the city has reported 67 homicides, according to the most recent Flint Police Department crime statistics. The total marks the highest number of homicides since 2012, a year that Flint Police said there were a total of 68 homicides. Flint Mayor Sheldon Neely declared a state of emergency in late July. The declaration signed by Neely on July 23rd allowed the city to provide a high level of resources to address gun violence in the city, the mayor said at that time. Increased initiatives and efforts by the police department, partner agencies, and the community have contributed to lower overall crime numbers. However, police need continued community support to combat homicide and gun violence in the city. Why is gun violence on the rise in Flint when other crime statistics seem to be going down? See, that is the essence of my question. You know, I, and, and I want to ask, if, if the guns are not the problem, then what is the problem? Is it the lack of resources among each other, or is it just too many people per square mile? You know, there, there's got to be some logical reason why the incident rate continues to rise. Right. And uh, so we, we, this gives us a great opportunity to bring on experts who, and we can challenge uh, or we can question them and and uh, kind of get to what is likely to be a, a reasonable response to why gun violence is growing. You know, years ago, Henry, when Flint made uh, national headlines as one of the most violent cities in America, I did exactly what you just suggested, and I interviewed the uh, director of a homicide research center in Minneapolis who found a couple of interesting anomalies in looking at Flint's statistical data. He said typically in the northern tier of the country, violence goes up during the winter months when people are closed in and in close quarters because very often these are domestic things. But Flint's numbers go up in the summertime. <laughs> and he thought yeah. that was a little anomalous. And, Did he have an explanation for that? Or? He, he really didn't, um, except to say at the root of cities that, that suffer high rates of gun violence in particular. That but my concern desperation is Desperation so- is at the heart of it. That what's at the heart of it? Desperation. Why? It's about people. We live in the it's about country people. where all we tell the food we eat, we protect our home. But, we, but we not necessarily them. in the neighborhoods where these Yeah. But they don't, we don't go occurring. starving in the United States. That's a, that could be called a big lie. We don't, we don't have to starve in the United States. 
Let, let me ask a question here. Does anybody know, I mean, in recent years with the decline of so many things in Flint, we've seen the increase in homicides and all that. Does anybody know off the cuff what the numbers looked like in the in the, the heyday of Flint in the 1950s and 60s when we were a city of 200,000 or so? What was our homicide rate in those days? Does anybody happen to know or have you heard anybody? Oh, heard anything a lot lower. No, but it'd be an interesting thing to look up. I, I did read an article once a few years ago, Paul, that's somewhat related. Um, a homicide detective who'd been a, a part of the Flint Police Department for many, many years um, was asked uh, for an interview or, or in an interview for a, a story in the Flint Journal, I think, um, if it seemed that there were more young people involved in you know homicides if if mm -hmm. younger people teenagers were shooting each other at you know at at a greater rate and his response really haunted me and and I think about it often he said I don't think the numbers have gone up but there seems to be a lot less remorse mm. oh wow mm. Mm. oh by the way, on that same point, I was just pulling up an email on my computer here. It says, we now have five homicides in five days in Flint. Uh, oh, geez. Somebody has posted, uh, Tanya Burns posted <laughs> a, a Facebook post saying she was, she was at a, the fifth homicide scene in five days. Uh, so Are we ahead accurate. of New York City? Gosh, I hope not, per capita, only 80,000 people. <laughs> per capita, I bet we are. Oh, yeah, per capita, I bet we are, yeah. Yeah, uh, wow. Well. Yeah, that, that, that's the way to look at it, statistically. Um, it, we really look bad with this rate of homicide, but we've got to figure out how to get past it. But we have so many psychologists out there and so many experts that's explaining away why people should be forgiven for killing another person um, or for abuse or gun violence. That, here's, uh, an, here's another weird way to look at it. I'm just throwing this out. Uh, years ago, I read a study about uh, homicide rates in Detroit, I think it was, and they said that homicide rates depend on what happens to the victims when they go to the hospital. And that places, so I was going to ask, uh, where, did, where did these homicide victims die? Did they die on the street? Were they DOA? Or did they die in the ICU? or, I mean, the emergency room. Um, it's a weird way to think about it, but, like, yeah. I was just wondering how many of these victims died once they got to the hospital where they had to wait because of COVID or something like that. Uh, that's well, that, that's, a new, that's a new issue. I did see a documentary yeah. about a, uh, uh, an emergency room in a hospital in Chicago um, that prided itself and marketed itself as the place with the best odds of surviving a gunshot <laughs> if you yeah were, yeah well if you were brought into that emergency room chances are you were going to you were going to live you were going to survive there, does anybody recall the story a few years back here in flint that i think and again correct me if you know any more details or recall it better i i thought the the military brought in some of their medics i think it was to hurley hospital to train for gunshot wounds, you know, in, in military settings. Uh, yeah. 
I, it, it I, could uh, be. Does anybody recall more about that story than? I, I don't remember it. seeing I, that one. Um, yeah. But I have to break here. We have our uh, top of the hour. Uh, I'd like show to ID. have a last comment on this when we come back. Okay. Well, we'll come okay. right back to it then, Henry, <laughs> and uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break for uh, show ID and. Um, as we do at the top of the hour. And then we'll be back with the second half of Armchair Politics on this uh, first edition of Armchair Politics in 2022. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 